encourage you to take out your Bible and look at just one verse this morning from Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, we'll give you a moment to look at that and get there. We're going to talk about a summary of Abraham's life, especially this one of his life of faith, his struggle with faith, and eventually his commitment to faith. Thank you, Mario. And so I encourage you to look along with me as we begin this and look at this. This is more from my heart. I always struggle more with topical sermons, which this is, because expository sermons, you know, the beginning and end, where the passage begins and the passage ends. This one, I could preach for two hours, and you'll be glad I'm not going to preach for two hours, I'm sure. But there's so many things in here that are applicable to our lives in this current time in our culture. And so we, I think, with Abraham, really need to cement in our hearts and our lives uh, the strength of our faith and where we draw that strength from. And I think part of the background and backdrop of this is meeting with pastors the last couple weeks, seeing people out in our culture that uh, are just kind of caving into uh, all the teachings who claim to be Christians and pastors are sharing the same thing over and over to realize that we're in a new world now. We're in a new era where the Christian uh, principles that many of us grew up with in some ways, uh, there's a lot of people in our world that don't view those things or even have a background in them. And I guess what took me back is when I began teaching my class this semester at Scott Community College, seven students, and six of the seven identify as agnostics in my class. That's the highest I've ever had. And I don't even think I have a Christian. So it just tells you where the culture is. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, the second part of the verse in the English Standard Version, it says, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Let's say it together, it's up on the screen. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Well, as I've just said, our country is moving away quickly from uh, God and, and we see over and over what's happening. And so how does the faith we learn from Abraham apply to us on this last day of January? Can you believe we're already one full month into the new year. And uh, as we look out, we see all kinds of issues. These are some of the topics or headlines just in the last couple weeks. A lesbian writer is writing a book and wrote an article, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, and the problems that people are having in heterosexual relationships. And this lesbian writer is going to give advice to those heterosexual couples how to be content in their relationships. David Brooks last fall wrote in The Atlantic, the nuclear family is a mistake. It's a tragedy. The 1619 Project versus the 1776 Project. And I'll let you look into those if you don't know what they are. 1619 is rewriting history from the perspective of slave owners owning people in our country. 1776 is from the perspective of our founding fathers as we used to hear in our history classes. The idea of white fragility and white privilege and ethnicity issues. Another topic, the toxicity of masculinity. The dangers of a patriarchal society. Equality versus diversity in the ethnicities. 
and then cancel culture issue that's moving quickly through our social media and employers. Mike Rowe is the latest one. The guy who was on Dirty Jobs who had a Facebook uh, program is now you know, unable to do that. They've censored that show. And so it's mind-blowing and overwhelming to keep up with the definitions and the anger in our culture. Now, if you're here in the sanctuary or at home, you would have got this on your email. There's a chart. I'll encourage you to take it out, and we'll put it up on the screen. And I know Mike's read this book, Mike Fenley and others, Christians in the Age of Outrage by Ed Stetzer. And uh, he talked about this in this chart that we got permission to show. On the left, it shows you where our culture was in the past, how where were cultural Christians, congregational Christians, convictional Christians, even if people were nominally Christian, they still tried to follow basic moral principles. But then the culture divide between that and non-Christians. And then we see the present, how it's slowly moving away. But the future, we see the cultural divide has changed. Where even cult congregational Christians, cultural Christians are joining non-Christians to follow the ways of the secular world because as that becomes more popular, as people try to look to science and uh, different um, gender dysphoria issues and other things, uh, climate change, all these things, people are buying into those things and moving away from Christianity. And so we see that. And uh, as you see on the back, there's the definition of these things, the non-Christian. As America's turning more into a secular society, obviously the non-Christian are people who do not identify with Christianity or religion at all. And as America is turning more into a secular society, this post-Christian nation has not turned into a kinder, more tolerant place to live, according to Kirby Anderson in one of his Breakpoint commentaries. He quotes Peter Beinart, writing in The Atlantic. He reminds us that a vast majority of Americans still believe in God, but they're fleeing organized religion in increasing numbers. The percentage of people with no religious affiliation jumped from 6% in 1992 to 22% with no religious affiliation. It jumped from 6% in 1992 to 22% in 2014. Among millennials, that figure is 35%. Many secular people have predicted that this trend um, would end the culture wars and we would get along with each other and bring civility. But Peter Beinert, writing in The Atlantic, says secularism is indeed correlated with greater tolerance of gay marriage and pot legalization, but it's also making Americans' partisan clashes more brutal. Non-churchgoers have adopted a bleak view of America, much more so than people are committed uh, to following Christ and being faithful to go to church and to grow in their walk with, with Christ. Peter Beinert says, we know that culturally conservative Americans or disengaged from church experience less economic success and more family breakdown than those who remain connected and they grow more pessimistic and resentful. You see on your chart, cultural Christians, what are they? These are people who self-identify as Christians because they're not something else or were born in a historically Christian country. They're Christians in their minds because it's part of their heritage. It's who I am, it's who I identify with because I was born into a Christian-minded family. The congregational Christians are people that some would say the C&E Christians, right? The Christmas and Easter Christians. People at church on Christmas Eve and maybe the occasional wedding or funeral, although they may not have a vibrant faith, they retain some connection to a local congregation, probably going back on Easter, for example. And then the convictional Christians, which is where 
we want to build and encourage people to be. People who identify as Christians and are decidedly more religious, they're more likely to go to church regularly, live values that align with Christianity, and choose their spouses based on their faith. They're strongly committed to their faith. They're regular in their church attendance. They're involved in Bible study. They want to be with others who share the same values with one another. Christians have to realize that we're not going back to where we were in previous decades. I hear that talk among people even outside of our church and other churches, what pastors are battling with. But we need to remind our people that the train has left the station and it's so far gone you can't even see the station anymore. And so we as Christians, we have to realize the culture we're in and remind ourselves what mission that we are on. That is so important. We need to renew our commitment to faith in Christ and be willing to face and take whatever comes our way by standing firm, as it said in Daniel, and taking action. My biggest concern is how to help people not compromise and give up on their faith. It's a choice every one of us has to make. It's a choice that we as leaders and brothers and sisters in Christ need to uh, do our part to help people and encourage them and educate them and pray with and support those who are weak and young in their faith. So what's the kind of faith that I'm talking about today? Here are four types of faith, and we talked about these when we first began looking at Abraham's life, and you can fill them in at home or here in the sanctuary. Four types of faith. First of all, there's the sensible faith. Sensible faith. In Matthew chapter 5, it talks about this idea of common grace, this idea that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, that man is born a few days and full of trouble, as it says in Job 14.1, that we all share a common experience as human beings, whether believers or not. And that's a sensible faith. When we walk out our door, we assume there's going to be oxygen enough to breathe. We put the key in our car by faith, and we assume and hope that our car is going to start. We assume that the snowblower is going to work unless you're Danny and it breaks down like this morning. <laughs> but by faith, we just go out and we live our lives, the just and the unjust alike. And that's a sensible faith. But then there's saving faith. And we know a lot about that. In John 6, Jesus said that my father draws all men who he wants saved to himself. Acts 16, 31. And I want a verse that I helped a little Sparky learn this week. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And so we know what that is. It's not a head knowledge. It's not knowing the facts, just like we know George Washington was the first president of the United States. It's not a temporal faith. It's not something where we say, okay, God, if you bail me out of this situation, I'll follow you. No, it's embracing the finished work of Jesus on the cross and realizing we're sinners and we need to repent, and we need a Savior, and we trust in what he did, and it's grace that we receive through faith in our lives. That's saving faith. The third one, sanctifying faith. Sanctifying faith. In other words, we're being made daily into the image of Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, 29, and 30, it says, whom God foreknew, he predestined to be made in the image of his Son. And then to give us, in verse 30, a glorified state. We're going to have a body just like Jesus, a body of perfection. But while we're here on earth, he's shaping us through the experiences of our life and molding us and through our education and through who we come in contact with in our lives to make us more into the image of his son. 
And then the fourth one is supernatural faith. Supernatural faith. Jesus said in Matthew 21, just before his triumphal entry, he was walking by and he saw a fig tree and it wasn't producing any fruit. And he cursed that tree. And the next day the disciples and Jesus walked by that tree and it was dying. And Jesus said that anything you ask in my name, it will be accomplished. Just like I spoke about that fig tree no longer being alive. So if you ask anything in my name, I will give you the answer to that prayer. Now again, it may not always be the way we want it to be answered. It may not be in our timing, but God promises supernatural faith, answers to prayer. So it's in this context and backdrop, I want to summarize and apply six faith lessons from the life of Abraham. Six faith lessons to apply to our lives from the life of Abraham. Number one, Abraham's initial surrender to walk by faith with Yahweh. And that's a very important statement. Abraham, as I've repeated on several occasions, started out living in Ur of Chaldees. Terah was his dad. And eventually they moved to Haran. And somehow along the way, God reached down and called Abraham to follow him, Yahweh. And the Bible says that it is his faith that was credited to him for his righteousness. So he came out of this polytheistic, animistic world and began to follow Yahweh, Jehovah. And we know that after the days that Terah was in Haran and he passed on, that Abraham moved on to Canaan, where eventually the promised land would be, but it wasn't the promised land then. And he still lived among pagan people, but he was faithful to follow God by faith. And the reason was that Abraham had spoken to him, and they had a relationship. And he got away from his family and his lifestyle and his former ways of worship. And he focused on God the Father. And so if we dig deep down to see the root of our faith, what would we see? Are we a cultural Christian? Are we a convictional Christian? Are we a congregational Christian? How do many people, those who espouse to a religion or Christianity, or say that they're spiritual, view the God that they supposedly worship? You see in your notes this three-word phrase, moral therapeutic deism. There's a book written by Christian Smith, Soul Searching, in 2005. He interviewed 3,000 teenagers to find out what their view of God was at that time. And he came up with this phrase, moral therapeutic deism. That's the God that they worship. Here's five things that he uh, found out from his study, what they believe. First of all, these teenagers believe a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Sounds good so far. That's the first thing. They believe in a creator. They believe that he's looking over them. Second of all, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. They believe there's a moral ethic to all things, and each religion teaches those things as well as the Bible. Thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. This is where they begin to go off the rails, create a God that's for them. It says, fourthly, that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. He's the grandfather figure up in heaven like a vending machine waiting 
to give you whatever you want to make you happy, going back to the last point. And the fifth thing that summarizes this whole view is good people go to heaven when they die. This is the illusion that many people in our society think about when they think about God. If you really dig down and really look at the root of their faith, this is what many people believe. And sadly, there's even some evangelicals who look at God from this perspective. But we should be looking, second of all, the life journey with Jesus. That should be our focal point, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, and how he works in the hearts and lives of people. So we follow the God of the Bible, the historical orthodox practices of true Christ followers since the disciples. Are we truly born again, regenerated, transformed, saved Christ followers? Are we listening to the voice of the good shepherd only? And that's so important. So important. In John chapter 10, take your Bible and turn over there. John chapter 10. I'll give you a moment to find that. The verses will be on the screen as well. I encourage you at home to look up John chapter 10. This is so important. Who do you listen to? Who is the voice of truth in your life? John chapter 10. Jesus gives a great illustration here. The voice of the shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 1, truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. It's so important. Who is it that we listen to? The Holy Spirit, the Word of God working in our lives. Homer, who wrote Iliad Odyssey, talks about in Greek mythology these things called sirens, and you've probably heard of them. And these sirens were um, women half women, half bird. And they were on uh, the west side of Italy, near Naples. And as the boats came along the shoreline, these sirens, according to Greek mythology, would sing out this sweet song. And they'd want to cause the sailors to come toward that song and hit the rocks and be destroyed. And so these sirens, they had to avoid those sweet songs of these women calling to them. They even said that some uh, masters of the ship would tie themselves to the mast so they wouldn't give in to the sweet song of these sirens. Well, guess what? There's many, many siren voices in our culture that sound very sweet, very convincing, but are we buying into the sirens in our culture? Are we looking for a teaching that's going to make us happy? Are we looking for a God who will make us happy? Who is it you want to please and find acceptance with more, God or man? Our God asks us to seek holiness over happiness, and that's not always satisfying. Jesus uses the words, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, no matter the cost, no matter what he asks of us. And are we willing as convictional Christians to identify with and pay the price, no matter what it takes, to follow Jesus? The application here is, do we hear the voice of the good shepherd above all the other voices in our culture? That is a very, very important question. 
Are we discerning of the voices that we're hearing? Are we understanding the agenda and the perspective that they're speaking from when they speak? A second life lesson we should learn from the life of Abraham. Abraham was so satisfied in his walk of faith that he wanted to show compassion to others. And we shared these stories, the story of Lot, and we've said it a couple times, Abraham and Lot, successful livestock owners. Um, they got to the place where there wasn't enough pasture land for all their animals. They needed to part ways so they both could be successful. And Abraham said to Lot, you choose whatever you want and I will take whatever you don't choose. And of course, Lot took the best pasture land and the Bible says, and we'll see it next week, how he moved towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And next week we'll talk about the cost of compromise in Lot's life. And so he had the ability to do that. Then later on, Lot gets, Lot and his family and belongings get captured and Abraham goes and rescues them, showing compassion to him. And then later on, Abraham is talking to God on behalf of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, trying to spare them from judgment, bargaining with God. If there's 50 righteous, if there's 40, he gets them all the way down to 10, and God says, all right, there's 10 righteous people. But of course, there weren't. But Abraham had compassion, compassion in his heart. He was caring of other people. So for us, the sub-point here is share your wealth that is all from God. Share your wealth that's all from God. That's what Abraham did. Our time, our talent, our abundance of wealth. We can share our time by becoming good listeners of people within our church and those without. I think what I've heard over and over from uh, Christian psychologists and counselors and pastors is one of the things in this time of COVID that people want more than anything else is to be heard, is to be listened to. For somebody to spend time, even if it's on the phone, even if it can't be in person or on Zoom or Google Meet or FaceTime. People want contact and relationship and people to listen to them. So we need to stay in the moment and in the present, have conversations with people. How are we as believers to engage the culture at this moment in America? Dwight Lipfin, who is the former president of Wheaton College where Matt and Mario C. went to college, he said this, the church is moving away from being the home team to exile and marginalization in our society. And we need to understand that. So we have to do two things to reach out to those around us. And that is to ask our neighbors about their story, their religious story, their background of life. Maybe they don't even start with their religious story, but you begin by hearing their story, asking them what have they experienced in their life. And another opportunity is for us to serve in our communities. And our church is doing a great job at that. We just a couple weeks ago, thanks to Carrie Barfels and the principal's uh, secretary over at Pleasant View Elementary, we were able to uh, provide pizza for the staff and the administration and teachers over there. In a couple weeks on February 19th, we're partnering with Asbury Methodist and First Baptist here in Bettendorf and Christ Family Church to provide pizza for Pleasant Valley High School for their 105 administrators, teachers, and staff. We're finding ways to connect, like through these cards, these thank you cards. These are contactless ways that we can serve in our community, and we're availing ourselves of that opportunity. As we share the gospel focus on what God is for and his goodness and beauty and the goodness and beauty that he has created and the benefits of following the Lord here and now, 
That's what people want to hear. Yes, there's those that are concerned about their eternity because of COVID, and we certainly want to share the gospel for that reason, but we need to emphasize what God is for. Too many times we're hearing what God is against, but he's for goodness. He's for beauty. He's for the best in people. Second of all, not only share your wealth that's all from God, but pray for others as you would pray for yourself. Pray for others as you would pray for yourselves. That's an amazing tool and opportunity. You know, Mario could share, many of us could share the opportunities we've had to pray with people, even non-believers, who are in this time of uncertainty looking for answers in their life. Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I was meeting in November with Dave Goy. He's the executive director of Young Life in the Midwest region here. I said, what are you doing with your staff? And, you know, they're not able to get into the schools as easily to work with the junior high and high schoolers and those things. And he says, we've made it a big emphasis on prayer. And he's an elder at his church up in Eldridge. And he said, we've put prayer as a major emphasis in our worship services. When we have in-person connections or not, we need to pray. Pray for people. Pray together on the phone or Zoom or Google Meet or however you do it. But just pray. Pray also with those who are non-believers, who you listen to as you intersect with them in their lives. I can only tell you, even as a hospital chaplain for 10 years part-time, I can say there were only two people that asked me to leave the room when I said I'd like to pray for you. Most people, even if they're non-believers, want prayer. And that's a way to break the ice spiritually. So the application here is, do you see one of your roles in life is to share what God has given to you with others? Your time to listen to them. Your gifts and abilities to serve. And maybe financially to help those in need. Thirdly, Abraham found a significance and purpose on his walk of faith. Abraham found a significance and purpose on his walk of faith. God gave Abraham a vision for his life. He was going to be a father of a great nation. He was going to have a land for the Jews. Of course, he would not see it. And he would have God blessing those who blessed the Jews and cursing those who cursed the Jews. His hand of blessing would be on the apple of his eye, the Jewish people. And that was the promise. And then God clarified it with that unconditional covenant, as we said, where Abraham was commanded to separate, to cut the animals in half and separate them in a field. And God comes through at darkness with a fire pot to represent his presence. That this was an unconditional covenant that he was going to fulfill these three things. So when it comes to us, what was I created for? What were you created for? Why are we here? What's our purpose and meaning in life? Why did God put us on this planet? Why are we unique and different from anyone else? Bertrand Russell, who was a famous atheist from yesteryear, I give him credit, at least he said this. He said, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. And that's absolutely true. If you don't believe there's a God, if you think we just were random molecules that came together, that we just happened by accident, we don't have a real sense of purpose. But if God created us and placed us here, we have meaning. We have a reason to be here. And so first and last of all, you were not created for your personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or happiness. 
You were made for much more than that. You were made for the glory of God and for God to use you, even though you're a sinner, to carry out his kingdom work. That's an amazing, amazing thing. And he does that through each individual personality by giving us different talents, different spiritual gifts, different heights, uh, and all kinds of things. He makes us unique for his purpose. Turn over to John 15, if you would. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. You were made to produce fruit for God. Think about that. He could have thought of a thousand other ways to get the gospel out, to do his kingdom work, but he chose us as human beings. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Talking about the spiritual realm. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to rest. Rest in God. Abide in him. He's going to produce the fruit. We don't have to build ourselves up to do it through the Holy Spirit in us. He will do that. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Place my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest in your souls as we learn from him. And so what do we do? We pray. We dig into God's word. We look at our passions and desires in life and learn from trying new things to find out what God has made you and given you the talents and spiritual gifts to do. That's why I encourage young people to try different things. That's with my kids. They all took swim lessons. They all played soccer. They all played t-ball and baseball, and they try these different things, and you find out what they like, what they don't like, what they're good at, what they're not good at. And that's how you find out who God made you to be. So I encourage young people to try different things and see how God uses you in those opportunities. In Philippians 2.13, God says, For it is God who works in you both the will and to work for his good pleasure. He's going to reveal to you what your passions, what your desires are, that if you didn't do that one thing in life, that you would feel like you, you just weren't doing what you were made to do. And second of all, am I fulfilling my purpose? Once we find out what that purpose is, am I fulfilling my purpose? Are you acting on what you know God has made you to do? There are a lot of people today that are making good paychecks that would much rather be doing something else. But because of their lifestyle or whatever the reason they're trapped into doing this thing, going to a job that they don't feel fulfilled at. God wants you to find a place where you can make enough money to earn a living, obviously, but to have a passion and desire for it. It's amazing when you see someone who is in the right place. It's almost like the gears of a car, the transmission coming together. And you see it humming like a good engine. You see this person happy and content doing what they're doing. And they feel fulfilled. It's not a job. It's something they get up and look forward to on a daily basis. It's a beautiful thing to watch or experience for yourself. I'm convinced 
that even these things can change our passions, desires, our, our giftings at different seasons in our life as we move through those. But you know where you are, where God wants you to be because work doesn't seem like work and you have a sense of joy despite the difficulties and you see lives impacted by what you are doing. So the third application is this. Are you sensing peace in who you are becoming in Christ? Are you at peace? Or maybe God's prompting you to do something different. Or maybe God's leading you to try something new. Whether you're in retirement mode or whether you're working, God's encouraging you to go to him and seek after that place of where he wants you to be. Fourthly, Abraham struggled with doubts on his walk of faith. It should say faith and not death. Abraham struggled with doubts on his walk of faith. Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife on two occasions to be accepted by the culture around him. He put her in a compromising position. Sarah told Abraham to run ahead of God's will. You know, God said, you're going to have a promised son. So guess what? We're getting old. We can't have children, or I can't have children. So here is Hagar. And of course, Ishmael is born. And because of that, there's that tension between the Arabs. Ishmael is the father of the Arab nation, and Isaac, the father of the Jewish nation. And that tension runs to this very, very hour because of the consequence of that action where they took matters into their own hands. You see, where do you find your purpose and significance? How do you find them? You find them and fulfill them in Christ. So the sub-point here is we can question God in a proper way if our purpose is to seek answers. It's not wrong to doubt. It's not wrong to ask God questions. It's when we get bitter and angry at God that it's wrong. But he wants us to come. And there's so many psalms we can read about David's life and the doubts that he went through and how he asked God questions. We think of Job and him questioning God. And, of course, God put him in his place toward the end of that book. So we need to remind ourselves that we can ask those questions. But Job even came to his senses. He says in Job 121, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think about our last ministry team leaders meeting just a few days after Scott Lee and Gwendolyn uh, Superior Labels had that terrible fire. And Scott got up, many of you who were at the leaders meeting, and he, he quoted that verse, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job 13, 15, Job said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's the approach we need to take, even when we don't get the answers in the timely way that we have about the doubts that we're experiencing. Another sub-point, we need to come to grips that not everything we have questions about will be answered in this life. Boy, I've learned that. There's many things above my pay grade that I'm never going to know in this life. You know, we can debate free will and election all day long, but only God has an answer to those questions. And we can go on and on with all kinds of other things that we can talk about till the cows go home, but we're not going to get the answers in life. And a verse that many of you know, just to remind us, Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's a story of a Jordanian young man who became a Christian, and he was 
dealing with persecution. And then the Gulf War comes, and the countries in Jordan and, and of course, Iraq, all that's freed up. And all of a sudden, religious freedom is open in Jordan. And he begins to preach the gospel, and people are coming to faith. And every day, the church is growing and growing and growing. And so he goes to the United States to get some more education. He stays and gets his doctorate. He, he goes back and sees more growth. And then he comes back later on and decides he needs more help and more finances to continue to expand the kingdom. And while he was in the United States, his wife went to the doctor and found out she had stage four throat cancer. And so now, instead of going back to Jordan, going back to leading this ministry, he has to stay in the country of the United States here and do everything he can to save his wife's life. And he gets angry with God and he says, God, why does this happen to us? What about all those Jordanians that need Jesus? Why are we dealing with that in our life? We've all experienced some of those doubts like that in our lives. There's a Christian man who was six months away from retirement. He'd been faithful to work for this company. But because of something that happened and they turned on him and he began to get persecuted, they decided to lay him off just before his retirement and take away all his retirement benefits. And he said, God, that's not fair. I don't know if Christianity is worth it. So what is it in our life that's going to bring us to the point, to the brink of maybe giving up on our faith? And I could tell you story after story, things I've experienced, but other people, humanly speaking, of things that just does not make sense as to, in this world, why God is doing what he's doing. But remember, we're looking from earth to heaven. It's like looking at the back of a cross stitch. Some of you ladies cross stitch, right? And when you look at the back of that, all you see are these long threads and these tangly knots and things like that. But it won't be to heaven until we flip it over and we see the beauty of the tapestry that God is designing and working in our life. So we have to be patient. We need to view our lives as pieces to a giant jigsaw puzzle where God sees the whole picture of what it's going to look like in the end. And we're playing our part in passing the baton on to others. So thirdly, are we willing to accept the answers that God gives us in our life? When he does answer, when he does give us, are we willing to accept them, even if they may be difficult, even if they may not be what we want to do at that particular time? James 3.17 talks about heavenly wisdom. But the wisdom from above, James said, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 1 Corinthians 1.25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Who are we listening to? Are we listening to the voice of truth, the voice of the good shepherd? Are we listening for truth from other sirens of our culture? That's the question. What is true wisdom from our perspective? The application here, has a period of doubt caused you to grow deeper in your walk of faith with God? I hope so. I think all of us can testify to times in our life when we've gone through some very difficult things and we've grown closer in our walk with God. And if you'd have asked us to sign up for that event in our life, we would have rejected it. But because of it, we grew in a deeper walk with him. The next to last life lesson in these two will be done very quickly. 
Abraham's faith was strengthened by God on his walk of faith. Abraham's faith was strengthened by God on his walk of faith. Think of the miraculous birth that was predicted by these angels that came and talked to Abraham about a year before Isaac was born. And what did Sarah do? She laughed. And they pointed it out that she was doubting. And despite that, Isaac was still born a year later. And then the willingness of Abraham to take his one and only son, the promised one, that he waited so long up on the hill and to put him on the altar and to take a knife and was willing to put it into his body and kill his only son. We see the commitment of his faith, the strength of his faith over time. So God will at times restore your faith. He will restore your faith when you doubt, when you walk away, when you're going to be bitter for periods of time. Just remember, he's like the prodigal son's father waiting there with his arms open to welcome you back and restore your faith. Train up a child in the way he should go, and in the end, he will follow those things, right? Proverbs says. So we continue to believe in love that God will draw us back and restore our faith. God will at times renew our faith if we're still walking with him. And we struggle with the doubts. He will strengthen our faith. He will answer prayer. He will give us memorial stones for us to stand on and say, oh yeah, back there, this happened and this happened. And so despite what I'm going through today, God will take care of me. So the application, how is God restoring or renewing your faith today? How is he restoring and renewing your faith today? Either one or both. And lastly, Abraham's mature surrender and his walk of faith. The first point was his initial surrender. But now we see he's graduated to the highest level here, his mature surrender and his walk of faith. He finds peace with God. Last week we talked about how he sent Eliezer, his servant out. He wanted to find a godly wife for Isaac. He didn't want just any wife. And he even said, if you can't find one that will come, I'm going to let you um, break the oath of the covenant. Remember, they put their hand under a thigh and it was a commitment to keep this. And he said, if you can't find the right person that God leads you to, then we're breaking the covenant. That's how committed he was to making sure that Isaac had a godly wife. Commitment to do what was right, no matter the cost. Maturity takes time. We cannot discount the hard lessons learned along the way. And as we learn, we stop making the same mistakes as we mature. That's why it's so great when I was a young person in Christ to talk to these people in their middle age and older and to hear their experiences of faith. That's why it's so great the Bible leaves all the, the warts and the pains and the heartaches of these people in the Bible so we can relate to them. So we don't have to experience those things. We mature in our faith. And as we learn, we stop making those mistakes and we figure out what's most important in life. God's kingdom work the relationships we have, and then being able to take them to heaven with us. That's one of the most important things that we do here on earth. Equipping those who will live longer than us, those who will come behind us. And as I grow older, I find more and more that money is just a tool. It's a means to an end. It's an economy to use to fulfill God's kingdom work. Not something to be hoarded, not something to place my security in, I think about It's a Wonderful Life, that, that movie, and Jimmy Stewart and Clarence the Angel, you know, when they're in there warming themselves and 
He says to Clarence, hey, you don't have 8,000 bucks, do you? He says, oh, no, we don't have any money in heaven. And Jimmy Stewart says, well, it's very, very valuable down here on earth, bud. You know, we need it. Well, we do need money, but it's what we do with that money that counts. So three things as we close. We mature in our faith by experience, by our experience. We mature in our faith by being battle-tested. That when we fall down, we dust ourselves up, off. We put on the armor of God, God, and we get back up and we continue on the journey, not stopping to wallow in our guilt and our self-pity, but where we confess our sins. We learn from our mistakes. We move on. And then we mature in our faith by persevering to the very end. To the very end. There's an illustration of a farmer. And uh, he had a hired hand. And they went out one day, and this hired hand saw this old bucket that had been sitting there. And the slats were separated. It didn't look like it would hold an ounce of water in it. And he said, you know, what's the use of this bucket? Let's just throw it away. And the wise farmer said, watch this. And he took it over and he tied it to the rope and lowered it into the well. And they left it there for three days, three days. They came back and he had the higher hand crank up the bucket and not one drop of water came out because the slats rehydrated, came back together and connected as they were meant to do. You know what? No matter what happens in our life, when we feel like maybe we've left in God and gone so far away and we think we are not of value anymore, God can take us, rehydrate us, mold us and shape us and use us no matter what we've been through. That's part of maturity. God wants to use you until he transfers you by graduating you to heaven. I think of two people in our church that have a mature faith. Think of Carol Erda. So we talk to her throughout the week, whether you are in our class on Zoom or other of you have contact with her. I just think about when she went to the emergency room at Unity Point Health and the emergency room doctor said to her, you know, ma'am, you know, with all your uh, medical problems, you're probably not going to live. And she told that doctor, sure I am going to live. I got people praying for me. I'm going to get out of this place. And she did. And you think about it. She always tells me all the time that when she calls people, it's hard to say no to a woman in a wheelchair when she calls. <laughs> think about her faith and all that she goes through. I think of Reggie Speak, who I think is 90 years old, as I talked to him a few, he's at least 89, and he's at the Ivy. And he can't do a whole lot, but he's got people coming up and asking for prayer, and Reggie's praying with them. That's a mature faith, using the opportunities that you can do with the circumstances around you. So the application is this. Is there anything that would cause you to lose your faith? Is there anything that would cause you to lose your faith? In Matthew 24, you can see these verses on the screen. Jesus was talking about the last days. He was asked by the disciples how they know when his kingdom would be coming to earth and part of that discourse, he said in verse 9 of Matthew 24, then they will deliver you up, speaking of believers, to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Will you be the one who endures to the end? 
for the sake of your soul and the sake of others to be a living example of Jesus Christ day after day after day after day of your life? Will you dare to stand alone for Christ by faith if that is what it comes to in our life? You know, the kids have a kid's song, Dare to Be a Daniel, Dare to Be Like Him, Dare to Be to stand alone for him. And it may be that you live for Jesus the best you can, praying for those around you who are not saved. And for some, it may not come until their deathbed that they will come to faith in Christ, but never give up. So our key thought here is an abiding faith in God obeys in the good times and the bad times. We follow God in the good times and the bad times because we have an abiding faith as we read about in John chapter 15. Let's say this verse together as we close. Daniel chapter 11. I think it's up on the screen. There it is. Let's say this verse together. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. I encourage you to ponder those three questions at the end of your notes this week. And let's pray. Father, help us. Help us. We have a heart that makes idols, according to John Calvin. We have sirens that we are drawn to because of the personality that you've given us. We have all these temptations to give into. And one of the big ones is to be accepted by the world around us, to be able to have Jesus, but also to be accepted by the world. That seems to be us standing on two logs on a river, and those logs are getting further and further apart. And pretty soon our legs can't span the distance. Lord, I believe you're calling us to focus on what is and who is the voice of truth in our lives and how we're going to be faithful to that and to show that in a loving way when we're attacked by angry people or we're persecuted or we're put down and mocked on a Facebook post or whatever it may be. Help us to respond in love. Help us to to stand firm on our faith and to take action by sharing the love of Christ in others. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.